0: Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero, the Dew Sweeper. You're listening to the Tour Coach Podcast, giving you insights into golf instruction at the highest level, from on the PGA Tour to our learning center at Frederica Golf Club. So here we are. It's uh, another edition of the Tour Coach. Emilio sitting in for good measure. He's got to drive me home. And uh, the great Bill Harmon. Bill, first of all, thanks for coming. And this has been pretty cool for me because this is the first time you've come, first time we've talked together, but also the first time I've, you've come to one of my junior retreats or programs. And it's uh, the kids have loved it, but it's been pretty cool having you be part of it. And I appreciate you making the trip, and I appreciate what you've done for the kids this weekend.
1: Well, the, the reality is I'm getting more out of it than the kids are getting out of it. Uh, where I work, I work in a retirement community and the junior club championship is 65 and under. So I don't see, <laughs> <laughs> I don't see too many 10, 12, 13, 14 year old kids. But more importantly, obviously quite a few of them were wonderful golfers, but they were all great kids and, uh, uh, that's really what the game is all about. And for me to see their etiquette and how they looked you in the eye when they shook your hand and how they communicated with you, they were just all fine young adults. And it makes me think that the game is in good hands when I when I see young people like that. So there's no way that they've received more out of this than I have, I can tell you right now.
0: You know, if you teach long enough, you're proud of things you've done. I take a lot of pride in the stuff we do with juniors because I feel like, it's fun going to teach tour players, but I actually feel like with these kids, you have a chance to, like, make a difference. And I feel like you you have a chance to change, maybe sometimes if we're lucky, the direction somebody's going in. And I think, you know, I, I don't know, it just not that I don't love working with tour players, but like I have a you just have a good feeling when you leave one of the I do. I, I like I feel like, man, like the way these kids look at you and the way they like doing stuff or to watch them go play holes with Emilio. I mean, like it's a cool deal. I'd never had that chance as a kid. I know you grew up around a bunch of great players. Your dad obviously was master's champion, but it's a cool deal to watch what you can do with these kids.
1: Well, you have made a difference. And I think that's something that bothers me a little bit about some of the, the uh, teaching wars and arguments we see on social media, because at the end of the day, If you get to teach golf, you you get to make a a difference in people's lives. And if you get to teach young people, you have already made a difference in their lives because you treat them like they're your own. And I see the way they interact with you, and I saw how happy they were to see you. And then I saw how happy they were to see me go today. (laughs) (laughs) But, no, and I think that's at the end of the day, I think if you really want to be a successful teacher... You have to care more about the student than you care about yourself and you have to care more about the student's well-being and doing well than you do about what how it makes you look you know and so our job really is to uh, guide these people through the greatest game in, in the world in my opinion and for people out there that have kids I would think it would be pretty unanimous. If you knew your kids were at a golf course that day, you were pretty sure they were safe. Tell that story, if you will, the one about your brother Craig oh, at, at Oak Hill. Yeah, the tree. Um,
0: I think that's pretty cool because I think that's kind of where, like, what I'm trying to do with kids.
1: Craig was a pro at Oak Hill in uh, Rochester, New York, for uh, 42 years. And uh, their highest honor is an oak tree on the Hill of Fame. The people that have those trees are pretty special people, presidents and Nicholas and Palmer and the game's greats. And and to honor Craig and his service for the, the 42 years, they gave him his tree on the Hill of Fame. And Craig has never done anything in his life for recognition. He's about the only person I can honestly say I've ever really met that never was interested in outside validation. Uh, he told me one time that I set my standards so high that if I meet him, it won't make any difference what everybody else thinks. It'll make a difference what I think. And he's always been true to his word there. So the ceremony there is a really big deal. They take a lot of pride in it. Oak Hill has hosted many majors, uh, Ryder Cups, a lot of majors, U.S. Opens, PGA Championships. a very, very proud membership. And they had different members speak at the ceremony. In, uh, A young man, Carter Lucas was his name, who was started at Craig's Junior Clinics. And he'd grown into a grown man with a family and uh club champion and all that stuff. And he got up and made a speech about what Craig meant to him. But what he said that resonated with me was the comfort that he had when he would drop his kids off at Oak Hill Country Club in the morning, knowing that Craig Harmon was in charge. And I thought that said volumes about Craig. Mm -hmm. Because Carter was a club champion, very good player, and Craig nursed him to the golf. He never talked about that. He never talked what his individual accomplishments were. He talked about how good it felt even if his wife was there, knowing that Craig Harmon and his staff was in charge. And so I think that's our responsibility. We live in an age where we're getting a lot of uh, publicity for teaching. It's good. It's good, and it's great, and I get it. But I hope we don't lose sight of what our real job is, and that's to promote the game of golf to people of all ages, all shapes and sizes, all colors. And because the game of golf has an etiquette that's based on a very uh, special thing. I respect your right to play your stroke, and you'll respect my right to play mine. And if you just focus on that in your life and you treat people with There'd that a respect. Lot less of stuff going on. I think the world would be a little bit better, but that's probably too simple of a concept for many to grasp. So, well, we had a couple
0: things I want to talk about tonight, but one of them in particular was, uh, so I'm going to use Emilio. I don't know if it's different or if it's odd or what, or if it makes me a strange bird, but I love to bring my students to other people that I respect the shit out of And that I know are passionate and I know they know what they're doing. And I love to get opinions. And I think that's healthy for the student. You know, I'm not asking to say, oh, I'm great. I'm saying like I don't know why more people, maybe more people do it and I don't know it. But like I think like people would get better if you got more opinions, maybe not wacko opinions, but if you got, you know, if you you know, but like I think I've always thought as a collective we're better than just an individual. Mm -hmm. I've always thought that.
1: Well, I think it's interesting because I think nowadays, once again, with the publicity the coaches get, they deserve it. And it's great. And many of the coaches, all of the coaches did not grow up with the opportunities that Fort Harmon's had. So I have great respect for the people that have uh, been very successful teaching. But I think it's very dangerous to think that you own your student. I think that's that's weird to me. And even Butch has many students that Peter Cowan works with. Mm-hmm. They might work on short game or they have short game coaches. Or, uh, and so I think if you're truly interested in the student more than your own reputation, then there are times if you've taught somebody for a long time, the message gets stale. You get tired of saying it. They get tired yeah. of hearing it. They need a different set of eyes sometimes. They need a different idea, something bright, something fresh something to stimulate them, and it's very difficult if you're coaching a tour player and you've had them for 10 years. I mean, you start making stuff up after a while. I mean, you know, why did that (laughs) shot go to the right? Well, it went to the right for the same reason it did 10 years ago. Well, if you said that, you'd probably get fired. So I think it's it's a positive on so many ways, and I also think from a teacher's standpoint, I learn from what the other teacher sees. And I think the other teacher might learn from what maybe I see. No question. But I think the, the issue is don't own your students. They're not uh, property. They're people, you know. And your real responsibility is to do what's in the best interest of them, not in the best interest of yourself. So one of the things that I thought was cool this weekend, right?
0: And I really do. I think it's cool. Is So Emilio is obviously a player I care a lot about great young player, talented, started his professional career, I wanted you to watch him. But then I also wanted him to have the opportunity to ride around the golf cart with you for nine holes with juniors. I thought that for a player starting his career, having your perspective was a different perspective than I could give him.
1: Yeah, and we actually talked at least 5% about golf. (laughs) 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 To be honest with you, uh, when I was out there with him, I, I think we were both focusing on the juniors, and we were very uh, much admiring them and how they handled themselves. And he's a beautiful player, but more importantly, he was very encouraging of them, and he recognizes their talent, and he recognizes how lucky they are to be there and how grateful they are to be there and how grateful he and I were to be there. So uh, there's so much good in the game of golf, and, and what you've done with these young kids, I've missed doing it. You know, because where I live, there aren't a lot of uh, young kids playing. And so I don't really have uh, any relationships with with, uh, too many junior golfers. So today was unbelievable. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. And it's the kind of thing I think every teacher should do. They should come to your junior camp here and not only see the, the talent, the ability, but to see where the future of the game is as far as the respect and how they handle themselves. Now that's the part that's impressed me the most. They're all the the coolest kids I've ever been around. Great. So let's talk
0: about the game today. You were just up at Wingfoot. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. First, one of the cool things I thought is because a lot of teachers, if I would have had a player like Emilio in front of them, said, what did you think? They would have volunteered 20 different things, right? He's obviously a really good player. You told him just to keep doing what he was doing, right? Right? If I had to
1: quantify what I would have told him, uh, I would have said just make sure you get your clubs and yourself to the T on time and go get them, boy. (laughs) That's what I would say. You know, he's very gifted, and it's a natural gift. And anytime you have someone that can naturally play this sport, I think as an instructor you have to be cautious and very modest in what you change. And the Hall of Fame is filled with many different swings. Uh, now, a lot of them will have similarities, you know, and there's certain principles that are being applied to their different swings. But I've often wondered if uh, Sam Sneed grew up in this era with somebody, you know, who couldn't break 85, you know, staring into a track man would say, oh, you can't aim to the right and take the club inside. You'll never be any good doing that, you know. <laughs> and then then. Lee Trevino goes to a guy who can't break 85 and he's got his head buried in the video and says, Oh, you'll never be able to play good opening your stance like that and taking the club outside and dropping it under and dipping down and chasing. They probably would have changed those players. Mm. They would have. And we'd have never heard of them if they did. So some people are just good. Some people are just, I have a, a, belief that probably 95% of tour players or 95% of athletes that are in the major leagues, the NBA, the NFL were born more gifted than other people just were that. at that sport. And then there'll be 5% that just flat made themselves good on sheer want to. But even those will have a hard time beating the others if that other person works as hard as the one that doesn't have the talent. So I think when you have gifted players, you have to figure out how to guide them to to focus on what the most important number in golf is, and that's what you shoot. I agree 100%,
0: but I think that that 5% or whatever it is, is getting smaller. I think there's less room now on the professional levels of all sports for the guys that just work themselves. I think there's just more talented people. It seems. I
1: I agree with you. And I think a lot of it has to do with people like you that started instructing kids when they're eight, nine, 10 years old. And they all have good grips and good setups and, and all that stuff. And so we have probably two generations, maybe of players now that have been coached really well. And so we have more really nice looking players. I don't know if we have more great players, right? Agreed. But I know we have more good players, and I think that's a product of good instruction we're at a very young age. My brother Craig has an interesting theory on on the speed because probably when you and I started playing golf, our, our fathers chopped off a set of clubs and gave them to us, and when they chopped them off, it made the shafts stiffer, yep. right? And the clubs were heavy. Very heavy. And they swung us. Mm-hmm. So we had real loosey-goosey, slappy things. We were trying to square that thing up, and so we created good hands. And then all of a sudden in the last 30, 40 years, they've come up with kids' clubs that are light. So now you've got a a 10- or 12-year-old kid playing with a golf club that's suited for him that probably weighs five times less than the clubs that we were using. So right away they're creating speed that we couldn't create with these old clubs or they might have been too long for us. We go to the top and they're swinging us, you know, we're falling down. And so I think there's so many different advantages that the younger players have today. And I think part of it is Club for Kids or whatever the company was that kind of started that. They started playing golf with little whippy shafts Mm -hmm. and short clubs that were uh, fitted for them and they were light, you know, and they could... That thing through with the longer clubs that we started. We couldn't anything. Hey, they were just burying (laughs) in the ground. Yeah, you know, so we had to change our swings, really, to accommodate that. So I think there's a lot of, you know, don't get me started on the equipment and how far the ball's going because I saw it at Wingfoot where I grew up. And actually, it was amazing that Wingfoot held up like it did. True test of that goal. Because the fact that only one guy broke par for as long as they were hitting it, uh, I thought said an awful lot about Wingfoot.
0: All right, so let's talk about Wingfoot. Obviously, it was an emotional journey for you. We talked a little bit about it. it was, I thought it was cool what you did. I thought it was neat the way you went back to see where. I thought what you said like last night at Frederica was it, it, it had a lot of meaning for your family. You, Your family and your role in golf wouldn't be what it is without
1: Wingfoot. It would have never happened. I'm convinced that if Craig Wood had not hired my father as an assistant pro in 1941, changed his grip, taught him how to play, and then Dad was named the head pro in '45, and in '48 won the Masters, and this thing took off. Whatever the Harmons is, I don't know what it is. I think it's. I just know it's been very cool to be a part of it. And I'm at an age now where I look back on my life, you know, and I look back on. Uh, my alcoholism, my cocaine addiction. I'm, I'm proud to say I'm 28 years clean and sober. I've survived throat cancer. And I, I look back on my life and I see all the good things that have happened to get me to where I am now. But it all started at Wingfoot. And so I had to be there. I had a, almost a, a spiritual need to be there. And to with the COVID and everything, you couldn't be a spectator. So I called some friends at Wingfoot about a month before the open, and i knew heck they'd just be able to get me a ticket you know and i said well, you can't get in i said what do you mean i can't get in so well, you got to be a volunteer we agreed to volunteer i said i will but i i don't know if i could be there two weeks in advance and you know, go to orientation and the guy said well let me well let me work on it And the uh, tournament chairman from wingfoot who i didn't know went to the usga and told him what my feelings were and the USGA uh allowed me to be a starter for the practice rounds on Sunday, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then I became a spotter looking for balls, which I had a lot of practice in growing up there. And so I was a lot of practice finding Uh, them at this week So I was there eight days and uh a very personal thing that the 1959 U.S. Open, when my dad was the host pro, he finished third, only lost by two. It may be one of the great feats of any club pro. But he made a 40-footer on the last hole. He playing with Ben Hogan. And as life would have it, think of this simple twist of fate. Danny Lee went ape on the 18th hole on Saturday, and he six-putted. He did. He got all frustrated, and he withdrew. So now they needed somebody to play with Abraham Ancher on Sunday. They called the a marker. Well, the head pro at Winkfoot is a guy named Mike Gilmore, who I love like a brother. I love this guy. I had dinner with him five nights that week. That's how close we are. They'd asked him before the week, would he be a, a marker? Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike has played in two U.S. Opens, two PGAs, won the Met Open. So he's a good player. He's 56, but still pretty good. So he called me at 11 o'clock Saturday night and said, I'm in tomorrow, will you caddy for me? He said, I'm there, man. So it dawned on me that now I'm going to get to stand on the 18th grade. And so I I texted my brother Butch and Craig, and I said, I'm going to try to stand on the spot where I think Dad made his putt, And uh, I'm going to acknowledge with a tip of the hat to him and my mom and brother, and it ended a perfect week. So, But the odds of that happening, Slim. some guy's six putts because he's going ape. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, 24 hours later, I'm on the same green that this guy went ape on with tears in my eyes. I got a picture of it. I raised my hat to those three. And uh, I immediately took Mike Gilmore's clubs to his office. I sat there for about 10 minutes and I left. I went back to my hotel and I watched the rest on TV because I couldn't have, it could not have ended any better, but you couldn't have written that script. So it validated, I think my emotions and, and my journey that I wanted to be there. And it was a perfect week for me. It was really great. So I was very proud to be there. It was awesome.
0: So Bryson, you know, I thought the golf course held up fantastic because I, you know, I had a couple <clears throat> players there. Heck, I mean, Everybody was over par but one guy, correct? Yes. And, you know, I want your opinion on this. And, uh, I mean, yeah, he hit it long. But a lot of guys hit it long. The fairways were running. I was impressed with how well he chip, pitched, and putted the ball.
1: Yeah, to me, there were two different discussions there. One was the obvious discussion on the equipment and how far the ball's go, But that should not take away... From Bryson T. Shambo's win, they're two separate issues to me, because everything he's done is legal, mm-hmm. and he was not the longest driver that week. I think it was maybe fourth or fifth. Right. But when I watched him, almost every time he missed a shot, he missed it in the right place. He hit some of. Which is how you right
0: should go. play golf. That's. <laughs> D'Amelio, so, do you agree?
1: Yeah. And, and then out of those tough lies around the greens, he hit some of the most beautiful pitch shots you could ever imagine. And then he putted beautifully. I think he led the the strokes uh, gained per putting or whatever mm-hmm. that stat is. That was his most uh, impressive stat. Uh, the the driving was great and all that stuff. His, but his approaches, I think, you know, that strokes gained with approaches was first or second. He was like first or second in every measurable. So he dominated that tournament. But one of the things I've grown to be very intrigued with him about is many, many, many successful people are risk takers. And for a guy to have achieved what he'd have achieved by the age of 26 in pro golf was pretty good. And he decided to some extent to change everything. Could have gone bad. What if it didn't work out? And what if it didn't work out to the point where he lost his confidence? See, once a great player loses his nerve, he becomes ordinary. See, what separates the really great players is their nerves to me, their ability to get themselves into a position, and then they hit the great shot. And once they lose that confidence or whatever it is, that inner arrogance, they may never get it back. So he risked that. And I don't think it, he thought twice about it. So I, I have found him very intriguing to to observe and to watch, and uh, the distance and all that stuff to me is a separate uh, argument that should not be used in describing why he won the U.S. Open. I mean, I think it's fascinating that
0: he came up with a plan, yeah, and an idea mm-hmm. that to him he thought, and it's true, but he but he believed gave him an edge and an opportunity to become better and it's one thing to come up with that but you got to execute it like you got to go do the shit then you know and i mean that's impressive
1: well some of the drives he hit uh on tight holes you know i know he missed a lot of fairways but he didn't miss a he didn't hit a lot of sideways drives you know he was five yards in the rough which you and i were there those fairways were narrow man. Uh, man a lot of those drives that were five six seven yards in the rough If we were just playing that course normally, the guy would hit the drive, pick up the tee, and we'd say, good drive. But they narrowed the fairways so much that actually some very quality drives ended up in the rough. And so I didn't get too caught up in his uh, fairway's hit stat because when I watched him, he didn't really, in most cases, he missed it on the right side, which gave him the right opening. Fourth hole, for instance, the last round, he missed it in the left rough to that front right Mm -hmm. pin. If he hit it in the right rough, he might not have been able to get on the green. Because Of the angle and the grain runs that way, so he was shooting right up the alley, he hit an incredible shot, made the putt, made three because he missed it in the right place. I saw him, he played the group behind
0: Andy Ogletree the first two days, so I was, you know, I got to see some of it. And there, same thing, I remember on 11, he hit driver, it's crazy hit right, to
1: hit driver on that hole,
0: right? And he hits driver, but he hits it left in the rough, but he's pitching into the wind, yep, right. And he uses slope, hits it long. Behind the hole, yeah. Right behind the hole, and And he has 15 feet, right? You know, he always seemed to, whereas if he blows it right and you got to go right, you got to get on the green.
1: So his his misses were very calculated, which is, you know, calculated would be a pretty good way to describe him, I would say. You
0: know, but I think that the
1: distance, but I, you know, I think they're all long now. Like there are
0: no short hitters. Yeah, I They're mean just long hitters and longer hitters. And I don't know that growing the fairways in that narrow hurts the long hitter because nobody's going to hit that many fairways.
1: You know, I mean everybody I was going to miss. Just, everybody missed fifty percent of the You know, probably of the, the reason that the the course played hard was the firmness. Mm-hmm. And the greens got firmer and a lot faster. And these guys are so good. Anytime you do not allow them to control the exact yard that the ball stops, you have a chance to change the scores a little bit. And when you do add the rough, obviously that makes it harder. And even if you could reach the green from the rough, you still got to have hit a heck of a shot to get anywhere close to the right distance. So he was hitting shots out of the rough. And I, and I must say uh, he had to get some good breaks because there – Other people could hit uh, shots similar places and they'd get a lie so bad they couldn't. So Matt Wolf hitting two fairways and shooting 65. Great. You know, for him to hit those shots out of the rough onto the green, he had to get playable lies. I saw even as a marker, you know. Uh, Abraham Ansher on the last hole uh, hit it on the 17th hole, hit it in the first cut. Then the ball was down so much he couldn't have answered 100 yards. Another guy could have hit it 10 yards to the right and got a little cuppy. But I think that the windy, dry weather dried out the yes. rough. It was very uh, moist and, and thick early in the week. And so it dried it out so the grass wasn't nearly as difficult to get the club through. But, but those uh, greens f- taking, baked out. I'm not taking anything away from what he did. I don't care how far he hit it or whether I like the equipment or that's a different argument for me. That guy dominated he shot four rounds in the 60s, you know. Pretty damn that's good. pretty good.
0: So what do you think that does for instruction, the way he's going, for those of us teaching and developing players? Curious what your
1: thoughts are on that. Well, I think maybe there's only one organization that can put a, a halt to this equipment stuff, and that's Augusta. If they come out with their own ball for that. Hmm. See, they don't have to deal with the manufacturers. They don't have to have a master's. There's no law saying they've got to have that tournament. It's their tournament, you see. So what if in 2021 they decide we're going to have a tournament ball and it's going to go, let's say, 30 yards shorter? How many players do you think actually would protest and withdraw? None. That's what I'm thinking. So maybe it's going to take a renegade to say, you know what, we're sick of this. We're sick of lengthening our course every year. We're sick of them hitting driving wedges into par fives. It's not golf, you know. And so I think they're the only ones that can start the ball rolling. But I don't know how the manufacturers can do it, to be honest with you. I I think the Tour has to come up with their own ball. The PGA Tour is the only sports organization that doesn't make their own rules, really. College football and pro football have different rules, different hash marks, different stuff. They have different rules. Uh, the NBA three-point line is different than the college three-point line. They have different rules. The lane is different size. Uh, baseball had aluminum bats for many years. So they, I think they got rid of those for safety measures because the ball was coming off so quick they thought they would kill a pitcher at some point. So every other major sport has already dipped their foot into this, where it's okay to have a different rule for a professional sport. And so why the PGA Tour can't say, you know, we're going to come up with a tour ball and we're going to have – whatever company you're with, they're going to have to make one that, you know, conforms to that and maybe do something with the, you know, the size of the head of the drivers. And, see, not only does the ball go further, it doesn't curve as much. I mean (laughs) – So Jack was playing with a ball that probably went 40, 50 yards shorter and probably curved 20% more. And so, of course, they had to be better players back then and play a different style of game. And so what you see now, really, what DeChambeau's doing, I think, started with Vijay. Mm -hmm. Vijay was the first guy that went bomb and gouge. I can get a wedge closer out of the rough because now you have square grooves and the ball can spin out of the rough. I saw some people... Out of the first cut at wing foot, which is pretty good rough. Spinning the ball back out of the rough. At a U.S. Open. At a U.S. Open. So that's kind of ludicrous almost. So I think, and I sense, Fred Ridley said something last year, at, you know, the big chairman press conference. I guess it would have been what Tiger won. He said something very interesting. He said uh, they asked, "Are you going to extend the T on thirteen or whatever?" He said, "You know, we're going to just wait and see what they do with the ball." And to me, he threw that out as if I'm going to put the ball in the USGA and the r court. And if they don't do anything, we'll do it. Maybe we will. That's what I took out of it. That's just my opinion. I don't know Fred Ridley. He doesn't know me. But the way he said it, I thought he was putting the ball back in their court. We're just going to wait and see what the USGA and the RNA do with the ball. Why would he say that? Unless they wanted to do something with the ball. So I, I think if they did it, it would create quite a buzz and it would really open up the discussion. Maybe it wouldn't make a difference. Who knows? And would there be a player that would protest and not play? Have you guys whining? But will they whine enough to really show what they got and say, "I'm not You might have play one play. odd ball. Yeah, sure. But or would they say, "This will be kind of cool. This will be different. I got to reconfigure my whole game." But yeah. I mean, I don't think a guy like Tiger would like it because would say, Great. it would be more about skill. Well, oddly enough, in Tiger's heyday, even though he hit it long, he used the softest ball. They said of any player, right? That he actually used a ball that didn't go far because right. he wanted to control his iron. So that was kind of interesting, too.
0: Bill, awesome stuff.
1: Good. Great weekend. Yeah, it's been thank great. You, great. Can't thank you enough.
0: Emilio, thanks for driving yeah, me around. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and spending time with us. And uh,
1: I think the only reason he has me here is I can be a designated driver, too. Hey, you know? let's, not, let's <laughs> not ruin my mojo. All right, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Tour Coach with Tony Ruggiero. If you enjoyed this make sure to hit subscribe Apple Podcast Spotify wherever you are listening to this podcast you can stay up to date because we have weekly episodes coming your way with fascinating people in the world of golf instruction at the highest level make sure to subscribe and stay tuned If you want to learn more about Tony head over to dosweepersgolf.com to get all the details on what he's up to maybe you want to see him grab a lesson or go to one of his camps pick up his book lessons from the legends you can do that there if you want to see tony in action with some videos and other content head over to golfsciencelab.com slash tony to get more info there this episode
0: was powered by the golf science lab and was edited mixed and produced by just hit
1: published productions
0: As we go into year two of the tour coach, it wouldn't be possible without the support of all our sponsors. And I've had some great ones. And one of the things that I'm most proud of in my career and in my business is the fact that all of my relationships here and all these sponsorships have been long time, long withstanding relationships, haven't jumped from sponsor to sponsor and manufacturer to manufacturer. And I've always prided ourselves in special relationships. And when people work together, support each other, and we've all put out great products for the benefits of everybody else so i want to give a special thanks to these folks that have been with me for such a long time and that would be the folks at shrickson cleveland golf and zexio couldn't ask for a better manufacturer to be aligned with and not only do they put out great product and great support but they're first class people and they believe in what we're doing here on the tour coach and with the dew sweepers and also vineyard vines ian shep tj and all the folks at vineyard vines it's hard to keep me looking good, but they do a fantastic job, and they're like family. They support everything on the Dew Sweepers, and we're so proud to be affiliated with and support the folks at Vineyard Vines. So if you're out there, you're listening to the Tour Coach, please support our sponsors, on Cleveland Golf Zexio, as well as Vineyard Vines. And keep listening and keep enjoying hanging out with us here on the Tour Coach.